Hello and welcome to Socialism, the weekly Marxist analysis podcast from the Socialist Party. Fifty years ago, the British state sent the army into Northern Ireland. This followed the famous Battle of Bogside when Catholic residents defended their homes against a violent police invasion. The results of the military intervention was decades of terror and armed conflict. But the story could have gone very differently. Strike action and working class defence patrols had begun to bridge the sectarian divide. This episode, we ask what workers and socialists can learn from the events of August 1969 in Northern Ireland. Hi there, thanks very much for that introduction. This episode, we're going to be speaking with Niall Mulholland of the Committee for a Workers International, Niles from Northern Ireland, and he's going to be speaking today about the 50th anniversary of the troops being sent in to Northern Ireland. Hi Niall. Hello James. Niall, earlier this month was the 50th anniversary of the Battle of the Bogside in Northern Ireland, at a time when the British state deployed troops on the streets of Derry and Belfast. Is it true that the Labour Prime Minister at the time, Harold Wilson, was acting in the interest of peace in doing this? No, it wasn't. Wilson had his hand forced by events on the ground. Mm -hmm. And of course, we should also take into account that there's a long history of British colonialism and imperialism in Ireland. And I don't think anybody would argue that was carried out for humanitarian purposes. Mm -hmm. It was about profits and strategic interest and so on. And in 1969... The situation reached a boiling point in Derry, where during the Apprentice Boys parade near the bog side... So the Apprentice Boys, who were they? The Apprentice Boys were part of the Orange Order, which is like a cultural marching bands and organisations from the Unionist side of the community mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland. The Apprentice Boys march every year on the walls of Derry to commemorate the breaking of the siege of Derry in the 1700s. Okay. So they were marching, as they do every year, 15,000 of them, but the situation was extremely tense beforehand Mm -hmm. because there's a general assumption that after a year or so of mass civil rights struggles, there would be an attempt by the RUC, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, to invade the Bogside area, which is a Catholic working class area. And the Apprentice Boys Parade was really the event that triggered off that attempt by the RUC to invade the Bogside. Now, these divisions in the north were not new, were they? You've touched on that a little bit. No, um, there's been sectarian divisions in the north and in Ireland, generally speaking, for a very long time, for Mm -hmm. centuries. This was something that was foisted upon the people by British colonialism and imperialism. They introduced sectarian divisions with the so-called plantation of Protestants from Scotland and Northern England mainly, to partly divide and rule the people in Ireland. Mm -hmm. It's always been overcome to some degree through mass struggles. We saw in 1798 there was the United Irish Men's Uprising, which took its initiative from the French Revolution. And that was in the main actually led by Protestants, because only the Church of Ireland was the only established church. Every other religion or denomination was discriminated against to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. Catholics mainly, the most harshly, but also other Protestant churches. And so there was a fight, there was a struggle for national liberation, for home rule, if you like. And that finally developed into the 1798 uprising. 
It was after that that the British establishment encouraged and developed the Orange Order and organisations like that in order to increase divide and rule. They had a massive reprisals against the defeated uprising in 1798, mm-hmm. greater than the French terror, the numbers of people who were slaughtered. Really? And they also then introduced sectarianism and sectarian organisations into the situation. And of course, on the other side, we had right-wing nationalists over the years who also inject sectarianism into the situation as well. It's obviously a running problem in history in Ireland. And then with the partition of Ireland in the 1920s, which was largely done to try and overcome social and national liberation movement. So this was when the, the, the British government divided Ireland into Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That's that right? right, in the early 1920s. The creation of Northern Ireland was very consciously done by the British ruling class. They ensured that there would be an inbuilt majority of Protestants mm-hmm. and that Catholics would be a discriminated against minority. So this was a way of, again, dividing the working class in the north and the northeast. And that was important for British imperialism at the time because the north was the most industrialised part of Ireland. Okay. It had the shipbuilding, some of the main manufacturing, and that was important for the empire. And it was strategically, it was important to keep that within the UK, mm-hmm. as well as, of course, by dividing the island like that, it was like cut across the living social movement that had taken place. Mm-hmm. So from the very early days... Northern Ireland had this sectarian division. But again, there was attempts to overcome it. For example, the 1932 outdoor relief strike, which was a mass movement of unemployed Catholics and Protestants against the paltry conditions they had to put up with when they were applying for the dole. Outdoor relief strike. Outdoor relief strike. Outdoor relief strike. In 1932. It was a scheme that they were forced to basically give slave labour in Mm -hmm. order to get the dole. Mm -hmm. And people at that time, of course, in the 1930s were in desperate conditions. And there was a mass revolt against it, which united Catholics and Protestants and shook the establishment, shook the Stormont government at the time. Okay. Unfortunately, this wasn't developed far enough to overcome the green and orange right-wing parties mm-hmm. and to get rid of the Stormont government, but it did help to develop the labour movement. Now, speaking of the labour movement, you mentioned earlier on about the civil rights movement which popped up in Northern Ireland, about the rights of particularly oppressed Catholic people. Did the workers' movement have anything to do with the civil rights demonstrations? On a general scale, there was the old Northern Ireland Labour Party and the trade union movement. And the Northern Ireland Labour Party was always flawed. Its leadership were generally seen as taking a pro-union position. But nevertheless, it did attract Catholic and Protestant workers into its ranks and trade unionists. And it was an important force. And by the 1960s, it was becoming the second biggest party in the Northern Ireland state, winning hundreds of thousands of votes from both sides of the community. It had very important potential. But as I said, the leadership was very conservative on the right on most issues. And whilst they called for reforms, for civil rights reforms and so on, they were very timid and taken on the Stormont Unionist government. But at a local level, there were much more radical forces in Derry, where the civil rights movement really began. You had the local Labour Party, the Derry Labour Party, and its youth wing, the Derry Young Socialists, and Mm -hmm. they were much more to the left, much more to the left of the Northern Ireland Labour Party leadership. They put forward much more clear class positions. So, for example, they would not only oppose all the discrimination and the gerrymandering against Catholics, Mm -hmm. but also they made the point that Protestants also suffered from poverty and extreme shortage of public housing. Mm-hmm. and so on. And they called for jobs for all. They called for workers to unite and struggle against the Stormont government. So at a local level, there's great potential there for the Labour and Trade Union movement. But unfortunately, the tops of the Labour and Trade Union movement never brought these forces together. Okay. Never brought community groups, tenants organisations and local organised groups together 
to create a powerful anti-sectarian force with a clear class positions. And because of that, they left the way open for other forces to emerge, which is what we saw happen, particularly in the 1970s. So the civil rights demonstrations, the civil rights movement of the 1960s, which drew its name and a lot of inspiration from the struggle against racism in the United States, is that right? These were intervened in by grassroots movements of working class people which operated across a sectarian divide. This was a threat to the divide and rule which British capitalism had maintained in defence of profit. Now, you said that the Northern Ireland Labour Party was very timid in its response to the Northern Ireland government at Stormont, that it wasn't putting forward a clear class position of jobs, homes and services for all to bridge the sectarian divide. It wasn't drawing together these various different groups. So in this turmoil, what were the consequences of that failure of the tops of the trade unions and the Northern Ireland Labour Party to bring these struggles together and to fight on a clear socialist programme? Mm. Well, it was disastrous, really, because if you don't provide a clear socialist alternative, other forces step into the breach. Mm. And as we saw in that situation at that time, it was sectarian forces, largely, which led, of course, to an increase in sectarianism and then a dangerous slide towards a civil war at that stage. As you said, the civil rights movement began really despite the leadership of the Labour and Trade Union movement. Okay. They weren't playing a central role in it from the start. It was like more on a local level. And it was young people who were influenced enormously by the civil rights struggle in America. They're also very influenced by the anti-Vietnam War struggle that was mm-hmm. taking place not just in the States, but right across Europe and in Britain, of course. And they were influenced by events like Paris 1968, mm-hmm. May 1968, with the revolutionary uprising of workers and students that took place then. These were powerful international events were having a huge impact on consciousness on the new young generation in Northern Ireland. Although the civil rights movement was largely involved in Catholics, there were important layers of Protestants involved in it. And that was seen through, for example, by the People's Democracy which was a broad left organisation that had been initiated largely by Trotskyists at that time. Okay. It had thousands of members, mainly students based in Queen's University in Belfast. But at that time, I think around 70% of the students in Belfast at Queen's were Protestant. So it brought in these layer of maybe more middle class, but at the same time Protestant young people mm-hmm. who understood that their struggle was alongside the struggle of the civil rights and against the reactionary Stormont government and against right-wing green nationalism as well at that stage. These were huge potentials. And October 1968, the 5th of October, there was a demonstration in Derry, a civil rights demonstration, it was only a few hundred strong, and that was viciously attacked by the RUC. It was televised, and that had an electric effect right across the north and Ireland as a whole. And overnight, the civil rights movement just mushroomed because the mood was there, mm-hmm. and hundreds, thousands of people got involved in the civil rights struggle right across the north, and there was a huge potential at that time. There really was a revolutionary potential development over those months, but unfortunately, as I said previously, the tops of the Labour and Trade Union movement had a standoffish position. Okay. They applauded every time that the Stormont government, which was under siege, every time they threw some paltry reform towards the civil rights struggle, which is always too little, too late. Mm. They applauded it every time and then would say, now we don't need the demonstrations anymore, take down the barricades and so on. So this wasn't going to win over the angry and radicalised young people at that stage. And then, of course, as the months went by, unfortunately, the sectarian divisions began to open up. And that was partly because the Northern Ireland Labour Party and the trade union leaders didn't lead this mass struggle with clear class demands and also uniting people through the trade unions mm-hmm. and other organisations, like tenants' organisations. So there were mass organisations, there were barricades in the streets. Mm-hmm. You had a situation where workers and young people could have been on the verge of making a bid to take power. 
And at each stage, the talks in the movement were saying, no, no, go backwards, go backwards. They were counselling caution. Okay. They were saying Stormont was shifting, it was bringing in reforms. In a matter of time, there would be an introduction of full civil rights and so on. Okay. That was the line being given by the tops of the Labour and Trade Union movement. But surely Stormont, as a representation of capitalism, fundamentally doesn't have an interest in establishing genuine equal rights in Northern mm. Ireland. No, and the thing is, the Stormont government, that regime was based on the premise of discrimination. Mm. That's how the whole statelet was created in the early 1920s. For them to bring in the full raft of civil rights reforms and economic reforms would have just meant the collapse of that government mm. and the collapse of their support. Eventually, of course, Stormont was prorogued. It was basically abolished by the Westminster government in the early 1970s because it wasn't tenable anymore. Okay. If they're going to even bring in the most basic of democratic rights, the right to vote for everybody, for example... <laughs> That would, that would have meant the collapse of the Stormont government, and it did, in effect. Over decades, of course, the British state was forced to give these institutional rights, if you like, for Catholics. Mm-hmm. But it took a lot of bloodshed and many years for it to actually be fully implemented, and all of it's still not implemented. So the Stormont government was never going to countenance that. Mm. But like any revolutionary or developing revolutionary movement, it caused splits amongst the ruling class. Mm-hmm. So you had one wing of the unionist government and regime, which is meant to be more reform-minded, based around Terence O'Neill, the Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. And then you had a more hardline layer of unionists and loyalists based around Peter Gay and Paisley, okay. who were just bigoted demagogues, who were opposed to any concessions whatsoever towards Catholics. Mm. And these people were never going to support any civil rights being given to Catholics at all. But they were given a bit of a boon by the fact that the civil rights movement, largely under the leadership of right-wing Catholic nationalists by people like John Hume, Mm -hmm. presented the idea that the civil rights movement was all about Catholics and Catholic demands. And that was played into, of course, by Paisley and other bigots. This is not the position that was put forward by the Derry Young Socialists and Derry Labour Party. Sure. Where they said that, of course, we're fighting for Catholic rights. Mm-hmm. They've been discriminated against, but we're also fighting for the rights of all working people. Mm. And we need to stand together for jobs for all, housing for all, end poverty, end the Special Powers Act, which is a very repressive legislation that even the South African regime at the time said they were jealous of. They wished they could have had such legislation. So they were fighting on a much more clear class basis. But unfortunately, at that stage, they were not the majority voice inside the civil rights struggle. So you had this big element of a developing conflict between the working class majority in Northern Ireland and the representatives of capitalism in Northern Ireland. And that was then channeled away from that into the sectarian division, which played out over decades. Now, part of that, of course, was the political leaders which you mentioned, and you've pointed out as well that the Northern Irish government at Stormont quite liberally used the RUC, the police force, to attack these workers' demonstrations and Catholic rights demonstrations. Now, these sectarian political leaders have a long history of also using marches to exacerbate the tensions, don't they? Now, was, that, was that an element as well as the police attacks in the developing turmoil which led to the Battle of the Boxer? Well, the Apprentice Boys Parade, which was due on As we the, mentioned earlier, yeah. Yeah, in August, was always seen as a potential flashpoint mm-hmm. as it drew closer because the atmosphere is becoming more sectarian anyway mm-hmm. across the north, particularly in Derry, which was much more bedeviled by sectarianism historically than Then where has been Belfast. Been? Belfast has been. It meant, therefore, that this was seen as the potential flashpoint with the Apprentice Boys Parade, And it was quite clear that the state was going to use the Apprentice Boys Parade and the likely riots that would ensue between the Apprentice Boys and local Catholic youth Mm -hmm. as an excuse or a justification to go into the bog site 
the majority Catholic working class area in Derry mm-hmm. to try and basically, you know, bloodily defeat the civil rights uprising that had been taking place there for some time. Mm-hmm. And in effect, that's what their plan was and almost happened. The Derry Young Socialists and forces like that actually counselled the local Catholic youth not to get involved in stone throwing mm-hmm. with the uh, apprentice boys and their hangers on. But inevitably it happened. And then the RUC used this as an excuse to pile in to the bog site. But what they didn't expect really was just a general uprising in that area. At the time, they no longer exist, but there was the very tall Rossville flats, which were basically used to rain down endless petrol bombs and stones and whatever against the RUC, who were quite ill-trained and ill-equipped force. And they were unable, despite successive efforts, to get into the bog site. Okay. So it was a, quite a humiliating defeat for the state. The RUC was only actually about three or 4,000 strong at that stage and they were overstretched, and Catholics came out in different parts of the north in street protest to stretch the police, to okay, stop yeah. them conquering the bog site. And at that stage, the Stormont regime decided they had to bring in the B-Specials. And the B-Specials were absolutely notorious semi-paramilitary call-up police force. Reserves. Reserves. They were hated by the Catholics, the Catholic working class, because of their brutality and their bigotry. And when they were called up instead, that was just seen as clearly an intention by the state to bring these forces into the bog site and to carry out a pogrom. And it was at that stage that the Wilson government decided they had to act, they had to send in the army. Well, you could see some people saying, well, look at the situation. You've got quite a high level of coordination, actually, in the working class in Northern Ireland, like you say, coming out in demonstrations to force the police to divide their forces so that they couldn't conquer the bog side. But you've got this explosive, literally, Mm. situation Mm. with petrol bombs, with the bog side becoming a kind of fortress, Mm. and with growing sectarian elements developing as well. Could you see some people having sympathy with troops being deployed? Well, most of the civil rights leaders welcomed them. Really? And, and some had called them in, called for them to be deployed as well. Many Catholics, many working class Catholics, welcomed the troops when they first came in as well. Mm. I mean, there was famous TV pictures in Derry of cups of tea being brought by local residents to the soldiers. Right, They okay. were stationed. Because when the soldiers went in, and this is despite, of course, the historical crimes of the British Army in Ireland, mm-hmm. but when they went in, it was clear they were not going to try and invade the bog site. So okay. there was enormous relief by the local residents and Catholics across the whole of Ireland who felt that, well, they've stopped a pogrom mm. taking place. I mean, we, the militant at that time, the Committee for Workers International, as it existed in Ireland, was very small. We had small numbers and actually were in Derry. Mm-hmm. People like Paul Jones and other comrades who were very involved in the Battle of the Bogside and in the Civil Rights Movement. And at that time, we were some of the few voices that clearly said that we opposed the entry of troops mm-hmm. in the first place because historically it's always been shown that they're not in there to safeguard the interests of the working class, mm-hmm. that be Catholic or Protestant. They're there to look after private property and to maintain, in inverted commas, law and order. And, and by th- private property we mean big business. Big business property and also, of course, the profits. Sure. Because the Wilson government calculated correctly that if the B-Specials had got into the bog site, it could have led to pogroms, terrible outrages, and this would have had a huge knock-on effect right across Ireland, could have slid towards a civil war situation, Mm. 
and that would have had uh, overspill effect into the cities of Britain where there's big Irish populations. Sure, Liverpool, Glasgow. Liverpool, Glasgow, parts of London mm. and other areas. And also, of course, the United States, where mm. there's tens of millions of people who consider themselves of having Irish heritage. Mm-hmm. And there would have been a mass campaign against Britain by that powerful lobby. Mm-hmm. And they would have demanded a boycott, most likely economic boycott and so on. So the stakes were very high for British imperialism sure. at that time. And that was their overriding interest. One, to try and contain the situation in Northern Ireland, not let it go up in flames. On the other hand, to try and stop any international campaign against their interests. Mm-hmm. But like I said, at the time, the militant, the newspaper, the militant, in its next edition after the troops had gone in, said that the call for the British troops to be brought in by civil rights leaders would turn to vinegar in the mouths of many of them. Mm. And of course, we know that happened. Within a matter of weeks and months, the British army was increasingly coming into collision with the Catholic population. Mm-hmm. And then we had things like the curfew of the Lower Falls in Belfast, which was a major point where any lingering trust, if you like, between Catholics and the British army just completely broke down. So the Lower Falls was, what, a Catholic street in Belfast? Yes, it's in West Belfast. The Falls is a very long road, arterial route which is now a majority Catholic area. Okay. The other side of it, of course, is people will say, well, what was the practical alternative? Sure, yeah. You know, it's okay to say the troops shouldn't have gone in. And some on the left, either fully or partially, went along with that idea that you'd no choice but to accept the troops going in to give at least a short period of stability right. and to stop pogroms. And you could argue on one level that by standing at the bog side, they were stopping the B-specials, obviously, going into the bog side. But across the north as a whole at that time, the British Army were not there when lots of other clashes and sectarian riots were taking place and people were burnt out of other areas mm. because there wasn't enough. There could never be enough of the British Army to cover every street, particularly in Belfast, where it's a real patchwork of Catholic and Protestant areas. Mm-hmm. And it would be impossible to police all that and stop sectarian tensions and fighting taking place. And we pointed instead to the fact that it was local people, often call themselves vigilantes, not in the sense of right-wing vigilantes, but in the sense of local people organising themselves, Catholic and Protestant, in what was called mixed areas, who came together, patrolled their streets to keep bigots from outside coming in and stirring up trouble. And there was multiple examples right across Belfast and other areas where these types of patrols and defence committees existed. And again, it was the responsibility, really, of the Labour and Trade Union movement to knit all this together, mm. to bring these forces together, to give it a programme, to give it a clear idea of the next step forward, and to help organise the defence of working class areas. But it was that defence, even at that rudimentary level, even without the active support of the tops of the Labour and Trade Union movement, it was those organisations that really, we believe, stemmed the way towards an all-out civil war. They were the key force in cutting across it. And we also saw it in the big workplaces, in Harland and Wolf, which at that time still had tens of thousands of workers. That's the shipyard. The shipyard, mm-hmm. yeah. Mainly Protestant. Tens of thousands of workers. They held a meeting, and a very important meeting. There was a, a show of hands, and a majority voted in support of the idea of opposition to the sectarian conflict which was developing, mm-hmm. and even had like a short token strike against this taking place. Mm. And that was important because it sent a message to all the other workplaces that this was the way that the big workplace was even the most important, if you like, at the time, was pointing the way forward. Mm-hmm. So it was replicated in a number of other workplaces and shop stewards. There's many more shop stewards in those days and the trade unions and in the workplaces, and they played an important role as well, acting as a barrier against sectarian division and making sure that Catholics or Protestants in each given workplace felt comfortable and safe enough to come to work. Sure. It was that ground level of independent action by working class people that stopped the slide towards the Civil War. 
The British Army, when it went to Belfast, because the conflict was sort of in abeyance for a short time in Derry, Mm -hmm. then the sectarian conflict erupted in Belfast in a much more sharp and brutal form. Mm -hmm. And the British Army, when they went there, when they were deployed there, were just unable to generally cope with the situation. They had wrong information, for example. They were setting up barricades, supposedly, to keep Catholic and Protestant areas apart, and they were in the wrong place. (laughs) So, uh, you know, half a mile down the road, there'd be sectarian conflicts taking place and people being burnt out, and they were, like, bystanders. So even from a practical point of view, it's not true that the army was able to withstand the general sectarian conflict taking place at that time. So the situation was that the strikes in the big workplaces, that the working-class defence patrols did have the effect of dampening down the sectarian mood and also potentially showing a way out of the situation, pointing a way towards a different way of running society, actually, where workers had control of things and were able to distribute jobs and services and so on among themselves without the kind of discrimination and exploitation which Stormont was involved in. Mm. Whereas the intervention of the British Army, it sounds like, actually exacerbated those Mm. tensions. Is that right? Yeah, generally speaking, I think that's correct. This was really a minute to midnight. And even though then subsequent developments in the 1970s was really a big setback for the working class Mm. with with huge increase in sectarian division and people leaving different areas, being forced out and much more separation where people lived. Even at that late stage, the fact that working class people from both sides were going on joint patrols locally to try and stop outside sectarian forces, whipping up hatreds and so on, was very important. And even though it was a token strike as such in Harlan and Wilf, it still had a big effect on the consciousness of shop stewards and the more politically advanced workers who were trade union activists and so on in different workplaces. It was important, like you say, it acted as a barrier towards the slide, towards all-out civil war, mm. and there was still potential. Even at that stage, even at that late stage, if the Labour and Trade Union leaders had stepped in and knitted together all of this... Mm knitted together the joint patrols, the so-called vigilantes, the actions in the workplaces against sectarianism. This could have been a powerful force that could have seen off the different emerging sectarian forces. Mm. But unfortunately they didn't. What they did again was to applaud the measly reforms of the unionist government, which is basically in a state of collapse at that point, Mm. and say to people, take down the barricades, go back to your homes, stay off the streets which is just abstract at that point. Mm. And of course, and it should... It leaves it filled open then to the sectarian forces if it, you do that. It, it leaves it open to them. And even though, of course, you know, I'm emphasising the important role that the joint workers and local defence committees, patrols and so on, played, you should remember, of course, there were terrible pogroms. I mean, there's the infamous mm. situation of Bombay Street in Belfast, which was completely burnt out. And it's really seared in the memory and consciousness of people in Belfast. It was mainly Catholics, but a lot of Protestants were also burnt out of homes at that time. Mm -hmm. And it completely changed the demographics of parts of Belfast Mm -hmm. forever, really, since that situation. So the sectarianism really came out into the open, but it could have been much worse. The lack of initiative, actually, from the Labour and Union leaders meant that the heroic work done by local workers and local communities was never fully exploited. So the obvious question arising from that, then, is why didn't the trade union leaders and Labour leaders in Northern Ireland bring these forces together and take the next steps, given that clearly, and this was predictable, and indeed the militant and others predicted it, the deployment of troops was a disaster? And furthermore, why did a Labour Prime Minister in London send the troops in? It's down to ideology and politics. 
The Wilson government was a government of reformism, of right-wing reformism. What do we mean by that? As it called at the time. The idea in that period would be that they would say, well, of, of course we support socialism and they'd make lots of fiery speeches in May Day. Mm-hmm. But in a day-to-day practical point of view, they managed capitalism. Okay. And they didn't really see it go much beyond that. Some of them would argue they had a evolutionary idea of eventually reaching socialism, you know, in the dim and distant future. Whilst, of course, workers live under capitalism sure. and they change now, today, just as they did 50 years ago. And the Northern Ireland Labour Party is just like a local version of that. Mm-hmm. And because Northern Ireland was divided along sectarian lines, but the dominant power, if you like, was the Unionist Party, they leaned towards a pro-Unionist position, the tops of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. And eventually that was disastrous for that party. Mm. By the mid-1970s, the Northern Ireland Labour Party only existed in name only. It had completely collapsed from an electoral point of view. It's an historic tragedy because there's not been a party of that significant size since that can draw together Catholic and Protestant votes. Mm-hmm. So it was a big setback for the working class. But, you know, unfortunately the authors of it were the leadership of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. Now, the best-known paramilitary force, the IRA, takes its name from what was, in an earlier period, a mass armed force of national liberation across the whole island of Ireland. How did they arise through Mm. these developments? Mm. There were Republicans involved in the civil rights movement individually or organised to some degree, but the IRA at that stage was a weak force. They had conducted a campaign in the 1950s called the Border Campaign, where they picked on border custom posts and so on. When you uh, say picked on? Shot at and bombed. Okay. But that was their last a serious attempt at an armed struggle. It went nowhere after a few years and they had to call it off. You know, they put the guns aside for a period of time and there was a lot of soul searching inside the Republican movement in the 1960s because mm. that had been such an ignominious defeat. Mainly because there wasn't a mood for it amongst Catholic working class people at that time. Mm-hmm. In the 1960s, of course, there was a period of modernisation and it was seen as a period of a more developing urban society. Mm-hmm of class politics was coming to the fore, given the international situation I mentioned earlier. Those are the dominant political themes at the time. And for many young Catholics, the IRA was seen as like a some sort of something to do with the past, mm-hmm. something to do with the 1920s and previous historical period, not particularly relevant to them. And within the Republican movement itself, like I said, it led to a lot of rethinking of their ideas. And there was a part of the leadership which significantly shifted to the left in that period, and they were highly influenced by the ideas of the Communist Party in Britain and Ireland and so on. So it was a shift to the left, but unfortunately along the sort of mistaken left reformist ideas of the Communist Party. And what do you mean by that? Well, they would call for revolution, but in a day-to-day point of view, the Communist parties for a long time, tied to the Kremlin, tied to the Soviet Stalinist bureaucracy, put forward conservative policies that was clear inside the civil rights movement as well, where some of their people had very important positions. Mm-hmm. There's a good example here. Just recently, actually, there's been new papers released, Declassified Police Files, from 1969. Intelligence memos from local officers to the Minister for Home Affairs in the Stormont government. Mm-hmm. And they refer, quite accurately actually, they refer to the three elements, they say, which vied for control of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And they refer to them as the nationalists, the Dairy Moderates of the Action Committee and the People's Democracy Trotskyites. It's condensing a lot of things, that sure. statement, but it, there's some truth in it. And interestingly, they say that uh, Betty Sinclair and Co., and Betty Sinclair was a very well-known Communist Party member, Okay. 
they refer to her as being a reckonable force. And I think what they mean by that is they knew, generally speaking, the path that the Communist Party would take. And they didn't feel particularly threatened by it. Because they knew that people from a Communist Party background and leaving positions were not going to stir things up too much. You know, we're used to class compromise politics, because that was the politics of the Communist Party. Not just in Ireland, but internationally at that stage. As I said, they were linked to the ruling Stalinist bureaucracy in Russia and other East European countries. Mm -hmm. They tried to make their peace with capitalism internationally at that stage. And actually, this report by the RUC at the time also correctly says that the IRA were a weakened force, but still they were involved, or the Republican movement was involved inside the civil rights struggle. But just to come back to your question, Mm. the IRA were weak as an organised force in 1968, 1969. And then whenever the sectarian riots erupted in August 1969, Mm -hmm. they were unable, even on their own terms, to defend Catholic areas. Mm -hmm. There were some notable situations where they were involved in gunfire fights with the police and army and with some loyalist mobs. But generally speaking, they were nowhere to be seen. And it's said that there was even slogans went up in Catholic areas IRA, I ran away. So there was, there was like a contemptuous attitude by many young Catholics about the IRA at that stage. Mm. But of course, that tension wasn't going to last forever inside the Republican movement. And then we saw in 1970 the split in the IRA between the official IRA, which is, as I described, more politicised left wing part of the IRA okay. and the Republican movement, then a split which became the Provisional IRA, which is the IRA most people would know of, the one mm-hmm. that carried out the main armed campaign during the Troubles. And at the time, it was a much more clearly right-wing split. But because they were able to appeal to Catholic youth by saying, we've got the arms, we'll get arms and we'll defend your areas, Mm -hmm. they got support, particularly after things like Bloody Sunday Mm. and other outrages and internment without trial in the 1970s. And and because of British Army repression, they were able to recruit from a trickle to a flood at times. Mm -hmm. But at that point in 68-69, they were not the key force in developments. Now, we're seeing rising tensions again today, and we've discussed some of those in a previous podcast with yourself about Brexit and the Irish border problem. What can workers and young people learn from August 69 about defeating sectarianism, defeating state repression and ending poverty? That's correct. There is rising tensions now. There's the whole question of Brexit, of the so-called backstop, Mm. of trying to come to some arrangement whereby there would be no physical border or customs posts, whatever, on the island of Ireland, because if they did exist, they could potentially be targets for dissident Republicans. As they were in the past. As they were in the past, and then if they became targets, then you'd have security forces, and the police and army, they're defending them, and then they become targets again, so mm-hmm. it could escalate in a short period of time, and that's the great fear of many people, particularly on the border areas. There's this other question of a border pool, which is part of the Good Friday Agreement. It's a bit ambiguous, but the agreement says that if there's a material change in circumstances, then the Secretary of State in Britain can agree to a border poll, the shorthand for a poll to decide the future of Northern Ireland. As in, would it become part of United Ireland? Sure. A similar poll has to take place in Southern Ireland at the same time and has to be a majority on both sides okay. for that to actually happen. For 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, that's just not been really on the table. Mm-hmm. People have enjoyed the relative peace mm-hmm. and you know, all these carefully put together institutions of basically sectarian power sharing mm-hmm. in the North. And now Brexit has sort of destabilised everything and Sinn Féin see the situation as advantageous to them to push for a border poll. 
The demographics are changing and it's predicted by some experts that the Catholic population could become a majority by the next census which takes place in 2021 or 22. Okay. Of course, we had argued that even if that's the case, it doesn't necessarily mean that all Catholics would vote for United Ireland. Sure. But nevertheless, it could be the reason for a poll to take place, mm-hmm. which would be a sectarian headcount. Mm-hmm. The reality would be that it would actually polarise the situation even more. So you've got all these things looming at mm-hmm. the moment and raising tensions. And I think, you know, as you, as you ask, what's the lessons for workers and young people from 69, 68? And I think the main lesson is that in the hands of sectarian organisations and forces, these political issues and problems just exacerbate and get worse mm. along sectarian lines, and that can lead to conflict, armed conflict at some point. And the only way to cut across that and stop it and to fight for something different is to develop working class organisations that can fight for socialist change that will take on the bigots on both sides, the, you know, the green and orange Tories mm. on both sides. And for that to happen, what we need to do is construct a new party of the working class in the north of Ireland. And, you know, there's steps towards it, but it's still at a very early stage. It's a key task that not just 50 years ago, but the events afterwards, the Troubles, shows that's absolutely necessary. There are important steps forward at the present time. For example, the cross-community Labour alternative has ran candidates in a couple of elections and last local elections was able to have Donal O'Caffey elected in Fermanagh, in the Enniskillen town area. That's an important step forward that's been noticed by a lot of people on the left and by trade union activists and local community activists. We need to try and see developments like that stepped up. Okay. And of course, the real basis for a new party of the working class comes from the trade unions. Okay. Despite the troubles, despite the sectarian tensions and divisions, the trade unions by far represent the mass organisations of Catholics and Protestants. It's still, I think, over 200,000 strong. We have unions like NIPSA, which is the main public sector union mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland. And they've just had a mass strike, haven't they? They've just had a strike of the civil service section mm. of, I think the figures are around 20,000 workers yeah. taking strike action. Very impressive. It's very impressive. And, and again, this will be Catholics and Protestants. Sure. So despite the divisions... The mass of people work in workplaces where there's people from both sides of the community. Mm -hmm. They may go back and live in separate areas. Their kids may go to separate schools. Mm. Those are things that will have to be overcome. But the fact that they work together in the same workplaces where the working class obviously has economic power Mm. is extremely important. On that basis, a new party of the working class can be built. But we have to learn the lessons in the past and it cannot be just a replication of the Northern Ireland Labour Party which ultimately failed and turned to dust because of it. It can't be a party that's seen as adopting to one side or or the other, taking Mm. a pro-nationalist or a pro-unionist position. On the other hand, it can't be a party that sticks its head in the sand and tries to hope that the national question and the sectarian divisions go away and just talks about very narrow idea of economic and social issues. It has to take on these broader issues of sectarian division and the national question itself. And that's why we've always put forward the idea that the working class in the north of Ireland needs to come together on the class issues, mm-hmm. taking on the bosses, taking on the sectarian parties, and hammering out, if you like, a workers' alternative to the sectarian politicians and the idea of nationalism versus unionism. And instead, we would say that the working class needs to unite around class issues and then fight for a socialist Ireland. And a socialist Ireland, we believe, should be part of a voluntary federation of socialist states including England and Wales and Scotland and Europe 
and within that context, the rights of all minorities on these islands would be guaranteed. And that really ultimately is the only way to overcome the centuries of divisions on a sectarian basis and to overcome the national question. Of course, there's lots of people who say, well, that's just utopian. That's not, you know, how, how's that going to happen? Sure. But we would say the real utopianism is to think that every other stripe of political ideas can succeed because they haven't. Yeah. Republicanism failed in its objectives. Mm-hmm. Nationalism, unionism, loyalism, they all just lead to greater divisions. Mm. And within the left, those who put forward an echo of those different positions also have not brought together the working class mm. and changed society. And we think that the only way to overcome the deep divisions in Ireland and the real lesson from 68-69 is to build on the potential of working class people to fight against the system, to fight for real change, and in doing so have a programme that unites them and for socialist change. Given that there were elements of this in 69 and the police were sent in Mm. and the army was sent in, Mm. wouldn't the capitalist state just do that again now? That's always a potential. It's always a danger. Look at Hong Kong and the Chinese regime. You know, sure. let, let's see how that unfolds over the next period of time. And ultimately, of course, as Engels said, the state is reduced, the capitalist state is reduced to armed bodies of men, maybe men and women these days, but armed mm. bodies to be used against the working class. We've seen it in British history with the Peterloo massacre. And Which we had so a podcast on last yeah, episode. So it's always a real danger. And therefore, it raises the question of how do you take on the state in that situation? And the main way, of course, we would argue is to undermine it by making a class appeal to soldiers and troops who might be sent on the ground mm-hmm. to be used against other working class people. But also for... And when uh, you say a class appeal, you mean your conditions are also bad? Yeah, you're being used as a tool against working class people mm-hmm. like you who are fighting for their democratic rights or fighting for system change mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, it was successfully done by the Bolsheviks. There was 21 armies from the capitalist West sent in against the young Bolshevik regime where they're able to successfully, in a number of situations, appeal to working-class soldiers who are already exhausted by the First World War mm-hmm. and were not prepared to fight another war on behalf of the bosses against a new workers' state. Mm-hmm. So if you have a powerful socialist movement, then that can have a powerful effect in at least dividing and breaking apart the state machine mm-hmm. and winning over the majority of the rank and file. That's something that can't be ignored. It has to be thought about by socialists and Marxists going into mass struggles. Would that be enough to break apart the old state machine? Well, there's that, but of course you also need to put forward general policies to change society. And we would argue that the dominant forces in capitalist society are the big monopolies, Mm. big business, big corporations. As we know, inequality has massively increased and the elite has become smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And the number of monopolies controlling and dominating society is becoming smaller as well. So the key issue is that these monopolies, these big corporations should be taken under workers' democratic control and management Mm. and that society or the economy needs to be planned on a rational basis and we basically need to see the socialist reorganisation of society which is for the benefit of the majority of people. That of course would be enormously popular if that was carried out in any country successfully and could be a beacon right across the world, that would be a powerful factor in opposing attempts at capitalist counter-revolution mm-hmm. against a socialist state. In 1917, we saw it, where despite you know all the privations that Russian workers faced after the First World War, they were able to start building a socialist state and controlling the economy themselves. This is before Stalinist degeneration. Mm-hmm. But in those early years, there was a huge beacon right across the world. As we know, the Communist Party sprung up everywhere. Mm-hmm. That international solidarity and support by the working class, that was the key factor 
and stay in the hand of imperialist interventions against the Bolshevik regime. And I think that could be replicated today, but on a higher level, because we've got a much more advanced economy today. Workers are much more educated than they were in 1917 in Russia, for example. And even in small countries like Ireland or whatever, that can have a powerful effect. So a society which is organised rather than by big business interests and the capitalist class in defence of private profit, organised by the working class and the mass of the population collectively to plan to provide for all, Mm -hmm. but also to defend its gains Mm -hmm. against capitalist counter-revolution. That is what we mean by a worker's state. Yeah, and of course the capitalist media and politicians like to present Marxists and Trotskyists and so on as bloodthirsty people who just want a violent revolution and so on. Well, you know... Why why would any socialist want that? We we, we want as peaceful a transfer as possible from a capitalist society to a socialist society. But we're realistic as well. We look Mm. at history, including 1969, and we see the role that the state will play. Mm. And the bloody role, for example, that the British Army then paid for decades in Northern Ireland, all about protecting their own property and interests, Mm -hmm. or what we've seen in the Middle East over the last two decades. Mm. So we're realistic and we understand the role of the capitalist state. But we do believe that with the size of the working class today, which is much greater in numbers than it was in an international level in 1917, Mm. that the working class is the overwhelming force in society and that a young workers' state or socialist state would be able to brush aside really capitalist reaction, counter-revolution, because it would be hugely attractive to working-class people to work to end poverty, Mm. to end unemployment, to have real living wages, to have good housing for everybody, free education, Mm -hmm. all those basic things. But more than that, also that people themselves would take an active part in running society Mm. and changing society. And that would be, you know, such a night and day difference between the situation today under capitalism, Mm. that that would be the main way that you'd undermine capitalist attempts to overthrow such a regime. Including through sectarianism. Uh, Exactly. And that would be used, of course, Mm. against a powerful socialist movement Mm. in Ireland. I mean, we did see it, as I mentioned at the start, with partition itself Mm. in the early 1920s. It was used by the ruling class and the Stormont regime at different points over its existence, 50-year rule. They injected sectarianism whenever they thought that Workers were getting united and threatening their interests. Mm. So it had been naive of the Labour and Trade Union movement in Ireland not to think that would be used again and injected mm-hmm. into the situation, just as racism is used here mm-hmm. in Britain and so on. Socialists in Ireland would have to be aware of that. And of course, in the process of a socialist change in society, that could only be on the basis of a, a level of unity between Catholics and Protestant working class people has never been reached before. Mm. So already, if you like, that level of unity would mean that the class understanding, the need for solidarity, would be at a high level. Which you can achieve through that kind of struggle. And you can achieve through that sort of struggle. Like you said, we saw elements of it in 68, 69, Mm. particularly 68, as the civil rights movement was on the ascendancy. Mm. That can happen again. And I think also people have learned some terrible, bitter lessons. There's always real dangers in a situation in Northern Ireland because the sectarian fault lines are always there. Mm. You know, under present conditions of Brexit and so on, the real dangers that can begin to slide back towards the dark days. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there's many people who remember those days and do not want to go back to that Mm. and know what it means. Don't want the paramilitaries dominating the situation. Don't want the army in the streets again. Don't want to be waking up every morning to hear again what terrible outrage has taken place. Mm. And there would be huge resistance to that developing. And there is resistance to it today. 
and the working class can move almost spontaneously to stop that sort of process. Even without mass socialist parties giving a lead, trades councils have played an important role in that in the 1980s and Most 1990s. Most of the local coordinating bodies of trade unions in a particular area. Yeah. yeah, they played an important role, particularly, like I say, in the 80s and the 1990s. As the troubles were sort of coming to an end, there was particular terrible outrages and massacres, and it was local trades councils that were mainly organising local people and held protests against those, and that had a checking effect on the paramilitaries. Mm. It did force them back. That's the sort of you know reference points, I think, that the developing socialist movement in Ireland needs to look at. And, of course, to consolidate that kind of class power which the trade councils represented, and to fight for the kind of programme, policies and organisation which is needed to carry through a successful socialist change in Northern Ireland, the island of Ireland, and around the world... We would appeal to you to join the Committee for a Workers' International and fight for those changes today. Thanks very much, Niall. Thank you. So, from history to the present day, we're welcoming Ian Patterson back to talk to us about some of the worker struggles which have been taking place in the last week. Hi, Ian. Hi, James. What's been going on? Well, thanks very much for having us. Well, there's been a couple of really important workplace disputes in the last week. Okay. Asda, the supermarket giant, is trying to impose Contract 6. Contract 6. The Martini contract. Okay, what does that mean? Like the advert, any time, any place, anywhere. That's the advert from the 70s. Exactly. It's going to mean more of the workers having to work bank holidays. Okay. Scrapping paid breaks. Really? Cutting holiday entitlement, cutting night pay, and giving the workers less notice when they're going to have their shift patterns. (laughs) That's terrible. Yeah. Now, Asda aren't stupid. They're matching it with a small increase in the minimum wage from just over £8 to £9 an hour. The minimum wage is going up anyway because Mm -hmm. of the government's national minimum wage. The workers can recognise this. There's no need to introduce this contract. Asda's a rich company owned by Walmart, the big supermarket giant in the US. Mm -hmm. They made £129 billion in profit last year. (laughs) And this contract has been rejected in a ballot, consultative ballot by the union, by the workforce. 93% of members saying they don't want it. Okay. But Asda are still trying to impose it at the moment. And that's why we say that their union, the GMB, should ballot for strike action okay. to make it clear it's going to organise the workforce to oppose this contract. And if they do that, well, they can link it to a real living wage. £10 an hour minimum wage is a step towards a real living wage for supermarket workers. Mm-hmm. Cut across any idea that there's going to be a small increase and that it should be offset with the other attacks that are happening. Mm-hmm. Now, the GMB is tens of thousands of members working in Asda. Mm-hmm. They're not a majority of the workforce, but in some stores they are. 80, 90% of the workers in some of the stores are in the union. And if they can't get strike action across Asda, they should definitely try in the stores where they're strongest, working with other unions like Unite or the Shop Workers Union or stuff. Okay, so there's a lot of potential for a fight back there, and we hope the union takes heed of the workers' anger and starts to organise that. What else has been happening? Seafarers in Liverpool, part of Transport Union RMT, they're protesting against a firm called Sea Truck at the Port of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. That firm is using the EU's free market neoliberal rules to try and pay migrant workers as little as £3.78 an hour. Way below any wage that people can live on, according Mm. to the RMT union. But the RMT has taken a stand. They've had a protest in the last week and they call for a united struggle of all workers, whether they're migrants or British born, to fight for decent pay and conditions for all.
yet another demonstration of the pro-capitalist character of the European Union, these rules which it enforces simply to make things easier for the bosses to exploit the workers and the RMT, as it has for a long time, standing up against that dreadful super-exploitation. Exactly. The EU standing up for the bosses, the Union standing up for the workers. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks, James. We want you to send us recordings from picket lines and campaigns and reports of your activity. We also want your questions, comments and ideas for future episodes. Email socialismpodcast at socialistparty.org.uk Socialism, the podcast, has no wealthy backers. We survive thanks to the financial support of ordinary working class people and young people. We're proud of the political independence that gives us. If you like what you hear, help us take the fight to big business. You can make a regular donation or a one-off payment at socialistparty.org.uk forward slash donate. Help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review and subscribe so that you don't miss out. Don't forget to recommend us to your co-workers and friends. You can read more about what we think and find out about joining us at socialistparty.org.uk. Socialism is produced by the Socialist Party. This week we heard from Nao Mulholland speaking to James Ivans along with Ian Patterson and me, Issei Priya. Till next time, solidarity.